This podcast is and always will be ad-free, but we rely on listeners like you to show us the love and subscribe. It helps others find the show, so please write us a review on the App Store by going to make.sc slash podcast review. You can also go to make.sc slash podcast to see the show notes, and we invite you to leave comments, join in on the discussion, and tell us what you think of the episode. Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. How do you know what's essential in your life and what's not? Greg McEwen has helped top executives answer that question and reach peak performance. His premise is simple. Cut out what isn't useful so you have more time for what is, but the execution is a bit more complex. With all the opportunities, invites, and resources, how can we clear our RAM, unclutter the desktop and folders in our heads so we have more energy for what is essential? Greg's book, Essentialism, has been praised throughout Silicon Valley and has brought Greg clients from companies including Adobe, Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce, Twitter, VMware, Yahoo, and many, many more. I started by asking Greg for advice on my own challenges. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is a really special episode. And I think more than anything, this one's going to have the least amount of fluff, the least amount of in unnecessary aspects, because, well, the topic is essentialism. And we are here with Greg McEwen, who is one of the foremost experts on essentialism and has done a ton of work teaching it at Apple and some of the biggest companies in the Valley. And I'm really, really excited to jump into this conversation and see what we can learn. Thank you so much, Greg, for coming on the show. I'm so happy to be with you. So I guess here, here's what's kind of on my mind, and I'd love to get your perspective. You know, I'm thinking about my day-to-day, and there's so many potential projects I can do. I have a friend who's writing a book who asked, you know, could you help me out with it? And that got me really excited. I'm teaching in the fall a bunch of students. Um, and then, you know, I, I also think about impact in terms of, like, my friends. Should I spend a lot of time with them? And, and there's so many articles I can be reading. It's, it's kind of, like, overwhelming. <laughs> how, right. do I, how do I know what's essential? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Where do I start? It, it's so complicated, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're expecting better answers than that from me. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge it. It's just, it's just not easy. It's not the kind of thing, even what you described to me just then. That's a very normal, that's a normal, real set of decisions, set of scheduling. Uh, it, it's not like a dramatic scenario you gave me. And yet it's non-trivial to think about uh, solving that. And, and here's, what, here's what I would say that, that, that I can't answer, neither can you. Which of those things to do right now in this conversation? You can't do it, uh, which is 
a bit of a challenge because life works that way, right? You have to make decisions right now. But what I would recommend is that what you do is you start scheduling a personal quarterly offsite so that you take a whole full day, a 24-hour period, and you get out, get away, get into, you know, into nature, go stay at a hotel, go stay with, you know, away from the noise. You know, no phone with you. There's none of that. Uh, you know, bring it, turn it off, whatever. It is a complete out there. And then you've got to think about the really big perspective. And I don't mean like uh, a year plan or a 90-day plan. I mean, that's part of it. But I think what you, you have to do is go way back. Like, what did my grandparents do? What was their legacy to me? Uh, what is, well, what did my parents do? What was important that they did? What did I learn from them? What have I learned from my life? What has been great and why? What has been not great and why? I mean, then think about the future all the way into the future. What are your life goals? You know, sort of no more than five. Uh, and then even go beyond that so that you say, look, imagine that 25 years after I die, someone comes to the same location that you're in having this personal quarterly offsite. It's not just someone. It's your grandson or granddaughter. And they are doing the same exercise. And they're thinking of you. What did they learn from you? What was most important? What was, their, what was your legacy to them? That's the kind of process I think you have to begin with. Because all the rest, if you, if, you, if you don't take this kind of design your life approach where you're thinking about the really big picture, then it's very easy to be moving around in the, the mess of our lives. You know, to sort of be prioritizing between a bunch of non-essential activities. Uh, th- being conned by all of the noise. To, to believe that the busyness makes it important, makes it essential. And so, I mean, the, the correct answer could easily be to you, none of the above, that you shouldn't even be doing any of that stuff. I know that's a little bit of a dramatic thing to say to you, uh, but, but I, I will say that that's the kind of moment that happened to me. So it's not so preposterous that it should happen to somebody else. So did you- I, yeah, go ahead. Did you go on an offsite, or did you do this process, or this? this well, I, I mean, I I do do those processes now because uh, because I, I do it for others and uh, have my wife come and we go through this process every ninety days. So the answer to that very concrete question is yes, but but that but, but I got to, I've got to put it into context what, where it all began for me. So this is this is probably sixteen years ago um, now, a little more, and I was uh, I was in England. That's where I was living. Uh, but then a friend of mine, Sean Vanderhoven, was getting married, and um, he sent me tickets to his wedding. So I come to his wedding, and while I was here, somebody said in passing, well, listen, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should help me with this and this. And that was an important moment because it, it, you know, I always knew logically, well, I don't have to do what I'm doing. I could do something different. I could make a different choice. But, but emotionally, I didn't feel like that. And in this moment, I suddenly had the emotional freedom to really ponder, do I really want to be at law school? So I spent spent, uh, 20 minutes brainstorming, what would you do if you could do anything? And by the end of that 20 minutes, I realized that that it wasn't just what was on the list that was significant, but what was not on the list. And law school was not on the list. And as I sort of just mumbled there, I was at the time at law school. Uh, What do you do? And, uh, and I realized in the process of thinking about, about the, so the, the real design of my life and what is my highest contribution, it wasn't to pursue the path I was on at all. 
And so I quit law school and I pursued instead teaching and writing. And that became my, uh, my, my, my professional passion, obsession. Uh, and really, there was a single question that grew out of that for me, which is, why is it that otherwise successful people don't break through to the next level? Uh, because logically, they should. They have all the advantages. They, they became successful in the first place. They know how to do it. Why can't they continue applying the, the lessons? And slowly, I learned this basic insight that was hidden in plain sight, which is that success uh, is, a, is a catalyst for failure. Interesting. And, uh, and yeah, and this is, this is how it works. It, it's, um, but we can, keep, come, we can stay with you. Now, you, you, you're capable, you're smart, you're driven, you're successful, because you, 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 you've, you've got capability, so you, you struggle with the curse of capability. You've got lots of different friends, you've got teaching opportunities, you've got uh, writing, writing and being involved in book projects and so on. I mean, this is, these are the right problems to have. Uh, but it turns out, in fact, that they are a problem if they lead to what Jim Collins called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And, uh, and, and I think that that really uh, is, is, is the challenge. If it leads to the undisciplined pursuit of more, then, uh, then it can undermine the very things, the very focus and, uh, on what was essential that led to success in the first place. So this is, this is really the, the paradox of success uh, that I write about in Essentialism. Uh, if that's the problem, the undisciplined pursuit of more, the antidote, the solution, is the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Huh. You, you know, it's interesting. What you said about the Jim Collins quote of the undisciplined pursuit of more, it reminded me of this blog post that a friend sent me a year or two back, and they said, why successful people fail, and it was three steps. You're successful, then you have so many opportunities that you take the first ones because they're just so exciting and you don't realize that <laughs> the best opportunity may not have even come. And That's it's, right. it's interesting hearing you talk about the, the day-long retreat or the off-site and kind of cutting out the rest of the world. I'd imagine that people would have, and myself included, a couple different reactions or, or fears with that. I think one is the fear of going and thinking how demoralizing it would be to spend that one day and feel like you didn't find the answers. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, there's a re no. There, first of all, there's a real risk in that. I mean, I've taught I've taught now for so so many years now, working with people and, and trying to grapple with these questions. I have learned that that there's such so high stakes for people that if you if you hit a wall. With the question, if you ask a question like, well, what's my highest point of contribution? And then you can't answer it. Somebody can't. They just can't even, they can't articulate sort of anything really meaningful. It can be terrifying to them because they're so aware that they ought to know the answer to this. They ought to, they want to be able to know it so they can pursue it. So, th so it's totally true. I mean, I, through, through a lot of trial and error personally, but also in, in working with, you know, hundreds of different groups over the last 16 years. Uh, I have learned that there is a process, and this is, this is why, I mean, in addition to just the trial and error, we've spent the last year designing this specifically. You know, uh, we, we, I, I taught a, a co-designed co a class at Stanford called Designing Life Essentially. Uh, and, 
And we take the best of those exercises, the best of our learning. We go to the best locations. We try to bring in the, the best people. To the, the community is really carefully selected. We want nice people uh, who are full of light. We really want and are very sincere and authentic about wanting to break through to the next level. So they get very honest with each other, very vulnerable. Uh, that this, this is, this, these are all important parts of the ingredients of, of helping somebody to do this in a way that really works. And, uh, and, it, and it does work. I mean, that's what I can report. It's, it's, a, it's a, an almost magical experience for people because they're, they're just not normally in that environment. Uh, and so, uh, and so I, mean, I really, in fact, I remember when we first launched it and we were coming off of the, uh, the, the program uh, and I, I just had this overwhelming sense of how is it possible that we don't all do this? And by all, I really mean it quite literally. How is it possible that children in middle school and primary school and high school are not having a day every 90 days to try and design what it is they really want to do. How is it possible that middle managers and professionals and, and presidents and kings and, and, and you know, and governmental leaders and, and business leaders aren't doing this? It, to me now, although it took me so long to design the process of, that, that I thought really is the best way to become essentially. So I, I get why it doesn't happen because it, it took so long to figure this out. In a way now, I think, how? We, we need everybody to do this. Who, do, who won't benefit in significant ways of being able to come every 90 days to think about this, to explore this? Not to beat themselves up about having to get the perfect answer in one day because that is not going to happen. I mean, that is, I mean, it is impossible to get to perfect clarity in one day. So, so we say the opposite. We say, look, take all the pressure off. Just be here every 90 days. Just take the day. And slowly, over time, you know, you go fast. And in fact, that's exactly it's an essentialist ethic that we bring to this program is, is go slow to go fast. Uh, not fast. If you try to go fast with this process, you will go slow. It's interesting. I, one of my best friends, he takes a sort of every, every Saturday, he takes the day completely off. He disconnects from the world, the cell phone, everything, and kind of uses it as his own day to be bored and just kind of sit with himself and be aware. And I was asking him, like, how do you know that that's valuable? <laughs> how do you know that time is valuable? And how, do you, how can you really have faith that something like this... I mean, what you're promising is, is huge. It's like, come and, come and you'll get clarity. But I, I think that there's also a principle behind it that is just putting in the time, irrespective of you actually achieving it, is getting you closer to it. There's this great Hunter S. Thompson piece where uh, it's a letter he wrote to a friend on the purpose of life. And he talks about the ninth path. And the story goes like this. I'd be curious to hear your perspective on it. He says, there's, uh, I'll have to find the direct quote and, and link to it for, in the show notes. But um, he says, if you're faced with eight paths and none of them are ideal for you or satisfactory for you, you should look for a ninth path. And by even just looking for the ninth path, you're on your first step to creating it. And so when I think a lot about your work and how you're approaching this stuff, it's if you want to get clarity on these higher level things, 
the first step is just to start looking. <laughs> and, yes. and, and maybe the, the pressure to find it is less important than the act to actually start to pursue it and give yourself time to pursue it. Yes, very much so, yes. The, the, in fact, there's a, the way that almost all adult learning Actually, I could go further than that, but but let's talk about like sort of executive education. The the the, the most of that is non-essentialist in its very design, meaning that it happens as a one day or a two day or maybe a week long burst of focus and attention on something. And the facilitator, if they're a great facilitator, they are going to really try to psych up that group. Get them excited. This needs to be life. This is going to be great. You're going to learn this. You're going to apply this. And then they're going to say, look, how are you going to apply this in the next two days so that you don't learn the, lose the opportunity to, to do this thing? All of that, right? That is the approach. Why, does it, why is that the approach? The why is because that's the one chance you've got. If you don't make an impact in that two days, in that moment, there's nothing. You've got nothing left. But in this design, and it took us a long time to, to come to it, even though it's sort of very simple sounding now. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's such it's, it's the opposite. It's an essentialist approach. People come and the first thing we're saying to everybody and the last thing we see when people leave every time is be gentle on yourself. You don't worry about getting applying everything you just talked about and learned. Be here in 90 days again. That's what you need to do. Because that alone is such an investment towards designing the life that you want to, to, to be in. That is the change that over time can have an awesome effect. I mean, I think people underestimate what, I mean, overestimate what they can do in one day of learning uh, and underestimate what they can do uh, every 90 days uh, for, let's say, three years. Uh, that, that, that can be tremendously impactful. Let's dive a little bit into the formula or the structure of introspection that you're talking about. You mentioned what sounds like some of the, the first components, which are off-site, disconnected from the world, also with people who match your energy level and are really kind, so it's a welcoming, supportive environment. What are sort of some of the steps you take them through, and why do those steps work? And, and maybe, <laughs> instead of talking about it hypothetically, you know, what, what should I do in, in the way that I'm thinking about this stuff? Well, again, I mean, if we're talking literally, I mean, you should just come. I mean, I, I mean that quite literally, not just, <laughs> I mean, it depends, it depends whether you mean this hypothetically or not, but you should just come. And then what you would experience is that you would go through uh, the, this whole journey of your generations before, generations afterwards, where you fit in within it. And, and then from that, you would start to sketch. Um, literally, actually, we have people drawing pictures and so on, you know, like, like you'd imagine in a sort of design school uh, setting. Uh, and, and, and beginning to explore, well, what, therefore, what would I do over the next three years? What's, what, what would really matter to me three years from now? And then from that, extrapolating, well, what are my 90-day goals? What do I need to focus on before I come back here uh, you know, 90 days from now? And from there, the next thing I think people need to do is design a dream routine for their week. Uh, for your week, we're talking about mm. you, uh, where you, you, you now say, what are, the, what are the routines I need to have in place 
that are aligned to my life goals so that as long as I fulfill this routine, I'm going to end up where I want to be. Now, of course, when none of us are going to keep perfectly to that routine, and it's just not going to happen, but we can keep moving towards it and we can keep exploring using every week of our lives as a, as a prototype. And we, we design a week and we say, look, this is what I want it to be like. This is, the, this is the routine I'd like to come back to. And then at the end of the week, we evaluate it. What worked? What didn't? Well, that wasn't realistic. That part is. What can I eliminate? And, 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 and how can I design this again? And we go at it again the next week. A week is like the perfect prototyping environment. And, and also beyond that, we're saying, could we run a reverse pilot this week? Could I eliminate something that I always do in the past? That is something I'm, that's part of my normal routine. But, but I don't think is actually that essential, that isn't really getting me materially towards what it is I want to, uh, you know, to, to, to be in my life, to become. Uh, and, so, and so we're constantly practicing you know, elimination experiments uh, so, that, so that slowly, over time, we are actually designing a life that is full of the things that matter most and is sort of suffocating out, subtracting out all of the things that matter least. Wow. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk about prototyping the week and testing, and I'm sure a lot of this kind of falls into the whole lean startup mentality of design, learn, build, build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn. Do you find that after people go on this 90-day retreat and they, they get clarity on their goals that there is a sort of iterative process to refine them? Um, and if so, I could imagine that some people, you know, don't feel this sort of full in their being clarity. Yes, this is it. I found it. And that can kind of be debilitating. Or at least in my case, I've thought, you know, oh, this is the way I see the world. This is the way I'm going to approach it. And then doubts kind of come in and it can kind of leave you. When that happens, that's when the cell phone gets distracting and the website browsing starts going off the charts because, you know, you don't really have that anchor. And maybe this is just one way of looking at it. But I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on that. Um, well, let's, let's just back up there. So, so are you talking hypothetically or are you talking about you? I guess more me. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and tell me again then in concrete terms what it is that you say that is a struggle for you. I think... There's some times where I think that the biggest impact that I'm going to have is in my personal relationships and that I should focus a lot of my attention on that. And then there's some times where I think that the biggest impact I'm going to have is going to be from an organization or through my work or something like that. So it's kind of a flip-flopping of priorities sometimes as to what's my highest order. Um, even though I think in a sense, you know, being loving... And then, so that's like one way. And then I also think like maybe I should just like improve my human operating system so I'm always in a flow state and really healthy and really feeling like I'm super present with people. And if I do that, then everything else will will fall into place. So I think it's it's kind of like these differing worldviews that can jump between, and then it's hard to even subtract things because all my energy is going into this hopping around. Yeah, what you're saying is, is, I think, is that is that you find it hard to consistently hold to a, a, a sense of clarity 
of what really is important now. It's hard to really know what's important now. Yes. Um, and, and you, you, part of the reason it's hard you're saying is because you jump between different ways of thinking about that question. Mm. Even if you say that's the right question to ask, it's still like, well, I can think about this from, a, from a, how many people do I impact to how deeply do I impact people to, to, to which people you're saying that how to think about that question is mm. complex. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think I have a couple of thoughts about this. Um, the the first is uh, is still the the well, actually, I just have an opinion about what you just asked, which is that uh, there's a, there's a quote, and I was just uh, thinking to maybe try and find it for you, but the, the 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 essence of the quote is that it's nobler to give yourself entirely to a single individual than it is to spend your life. Uh, in the pursuit of the salvation of the masses. Uh, and I think that's true. And I think that's true. Now, that, that's, it's, it's, it, it can be, I think, and ought to be a major and a minor question. Hmm. I think that we owe an obligation to, to a broader audience. Um, I, I believe that. I, I don't regret that we're having this conversation today. I don't think, oh, I should have just done something different instead. Uh, I, I think there's an obligation to, to society, to other people, to many other people, to the whole world even, uh, that when, uh, when, we can, when we're filled su- with sufficient uh, love within ourselves, we will care about a, a, a very large group of people. So, so I, I think that's important, but I think it's the minor. Hmm. I think the major is a very, very few, uh, you know, very small group of people that are the essential people uh, in your life. And, and there are a variety of tests on this, but one is who will be at my deathbed? <laughs> um, who, who will be in the room? Uh, who will I want to be in the room? And, uh, and who, will, who will be bothered to be there? And, and that's already a much smaller group of people. Uh, and that, that hints at, at the difference between making a good general impact and really giving yourself to, to a few people. And the reason it matters so much, the reason I believe this quote, this idea of it's nobler to do that than you know, to major in that versus minor in the other, is because that, that approach solves the root of so many of the problems we're actually facing in society. You know, to, to have everybody focused on solving everybody else's problem, you know, to, to get people just into, into you know, building relationships with the whole world instead of building a close relationship with, in my case, my wife or with my children. If, 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 we, if we all major in the thing I'm saying we should minor in, yeah, then, then it's like straightening deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not resolving the core problems which really are, in my estimation, family problems in the home with people we truly care about. But sometimes the relationships become so, uh, so fatigued, so underinvested in that they become the most painful relationships of our lives. And therefore, we avoid them. And therefore, we, we, we try and arrange throughout the world uh, being distracted on lots of other good things instead of getting very honest and dealing with what, that those few people that really are most important. Uh, so there you go. Those are my thoughts. What's 
interesting and maybe even ironic is that your work and the work of other people who are, who are bringing people together could kind of be helping people <laughs> form those closer ties within the family. Go on, explain that. Tell, tell me more. What, what, do you, what do you mean? Oh, you mean, you mean it like when people come to this essential form, is that what you mean? Yeah, or also, you know, I wonder, you know, it's funny. I, I've always thought that like the two things I want to do in the world in terms of my impact is I want to increase love and I want to decrease suffering. And everything in between is, is kind of just supposed to be a means towards that. And so, you know, imagine if hypothetically you created an organization that, that enabled, maybe through its retreats, through a technology, the sort of majoring in that one-to-one -one love. That's kind of almost challenges the whole paradigm because, you know, it's taking the most important thing and enabling it in other people's lives, even though it may not necessarily enable it in yours. I guess we're getting super hype. <laughs> no, no, but we're not, we're not getting so hypothetical because, because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So, so it's, it's, it's not like it's a foreign idea to me what you're describing. That's, that's what it is. But in my life still, for me to have the moral authority to be able to lead such a movement, and, and forget moral authority because it's not like I get it perfect all the time. It's, it's not even just that. It's for me to even have the insight, for the people on my team to have the insights necessary to design these things correctly requires that we are actually living them and certainly striving to live them. And so I still think the major and minor that we're describing here is correct. Uh, that, that in the final analysis, if I have, if I have uh, you know, got to the end of my life and I built an organization, the organization Vising, that is the name of the organization, as it can, can do what you've just described, helps many people do it, but I wasn't able to do it in my life. I, I will not feel that that was a success. I could, will not say in the, in, in the primary test of my life I have succeeded. I will say, yeah, I, I, uh, that, that was good. That wasn't the essential mission I came here to fulfill. And so, and so it, it is an important thing I grapple with all the time. And of course I don't get this right, but it's definitely an aspiration. This, is, this comes first. This is the priority. And, 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 you know, I talk about this in the book, but, but the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s and it was singular. Uh, priority, right? The very first thing, the most important thing. What are you going to major in? Uh, and sensibly, it stayed singular for the next 500 years. And it was only in the 1900s that we pluralized the term and started speaking of priorities. And, and to me, that's always laughable. How can you have very, very many, very first things? <laughs> and yet that's exactly what people say. And that's exactly what, if you really look at what they say, they mean. I mean, a, a mayor was just interviewed on NPR, uh, you know, from somewhere. And, and I'm listening to this as I'm driving along. And, and they say, you know, ask him a question. He says, oh, people keep asking me, what are my top three priorities? What are my top five priorities? Well, let me tell you. He says, I have two dozen priorities and not one of them is more important or less important than any other. I, I'm driving along in slow motion. No, this is, uh, this is like watching a train wreck happening in slow motion. Uh, we know the output of this. We know the result of this. So, so simply trying to do it all and straddle it all 
I think has very high costs. And, and, and I, I can go further on this. I mean, personally, I'll give you an example of my own life. I remember, now this was before I launched this ink, and so, you know, so, so it's before, you know, it would be worse if, I was given, if this happened to me now or in the future. But, uh, but it was at a time I was, I was, my boss at the time emailed me and she says, look, Friday would be a very bad time to have a baby. Uh, I mean, your wife to have a baby. And uh, <laughs> because I need you at this client meeting. And, uh, and I thought they were joking, you know, but um, I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. And I certainly was anxious enough about it that on Friday when my wife did have the baby and, uh, you know, she's well and the baby's well, but instead of me being present, you know, full of joy in the moment, caring. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I was trying to straddle it, you know? I was trying to do both. How can I keep my wife happy enough and keep my boss happy enough? And, how can I, and to my shame, I went to that meeting. And afterwards, I remember my boss said, uh, oh, you, you know, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And I don't know about that. I, the, the look on their faces did not evince that kind of confidence. But even if they had, surely, in hindsight, so obvious, I'd made a fool's bargain. And that was where I learned this basic, simple lesson. I learned it the expensive way. You know, others can learn it on the cheap from my mistake. This is the lesson. If you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And I think that comes all full circle to this, this question we're sort of wrestling with, which which is major and minor. I think if you don't major, you know, if, if, I'll speak for me. If I don't major in my family, then I will end up deprioritizing the most important people and the most important work of my life. And, and that would be, for me, that would be a tragic mistake. You know, that, that would be something that I would, I would regret on my deathbed. And, and, and now we're riffing on that. I've got to add to this. I mean, it's not like... It's not like that's hypothetical, really, because, because we know a lot about what people regret on their deathbeds, on the simple, basic idea that lots of people have died, and lots of people talked to other people before they did. And what we have learned, I mean, Australian nurse Bronnie Ware you know, gathered stories about this, and she found that the number one regret of the dying was focusing on other people's expectations instead of following, you know, that sort of voice of conscience inside of us, guiding us to what is most essential. Number one regret. Number two regret, totally in relation to that, is focus too much on work and not enough on family. So it's not like we have to just guess on this completely. We can, we can go to data, rich data, for the whole history of the human race to identify there are themes. Uh, and to, to say, look, a lot of really smart people and a lot of caring people that, 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 that a lot of people, I think, that probably proclaimed that family was more important than work still end up in a position that on their deathbeds, they regret the way they actually invested their time. And, and, so, uh, and so, I you know, I, I just put again to this conversation that, that, uh, that we, I think that, that we were unlikely to get to the end of our lives and say, I just wish, I wish I just spent more time building the organization and less time with, with my family. I, I don't think so. I know that's not the only trade-off in life, but I think that majoring and minoring in this way is, is, is a pretty powerful rule of thumb. So your family and those relationships are your major, your kind of all-encompassing, trumping priority 
in life. Yes, I think that's right. I dedicated the book to Anna and uh, my four children, Gracie, Jack, and Esther. And I, I, I said, because you embody, uh, epitomize everything that is essential. Uh, that, that's right. That's right. I, there's a quote that is very meaningful to me that, uh, that, that, that no success can compensate for failure in the home. And I think that's true. I just think that's right. And I, I, I think that the, the, the combined intergenerational, intergenerational wisdom of, of uh, our collective ancestors will, would bespeak that, uh, that spirit to us. I think that would be their message to us, is, is don't get so caught up uh, in, in all these other good pursuits that, that, you, that you deprioritize or de-invest in, in these, these relationships that are, that are most important. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make a contribution beyond that. As I've already said, I, I, I think we have an obligation to, and I feel a sense of mission in that that is powerful. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think it does matter uh, that we care a lot uh, about, about others beyond our own family. Uh, but we've got to, I think, always be aware and set boundaries so that, so that, the, that the former doesn't get consumed in the latter. I think it's possible to end up with both if you get the priority order right. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's interesting, going back to, to the, one of the questions earlier about, you know, you could have that impact on your family or you could have an organization that impacts 500 families. I think it's kind of like scratch your own itch. It makes school. The university was built by entrepreneurs who were really unsatisfied with their own education. And they're so much more effective at building our university than someone who was satisfied with their education and then is like, okay, I'm going to try to, try to, you know, try to, it's almost like an external thing that you can't even relate to. And I think if you do want to spread more love, having that foundation of doing it within the people within your life gives you touch points and points of relation that you can understand it deep, more deeply and then bring it to other people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with your immediate family, but also with friends and uh, other quite, people. Quite so. And, and, but I think underlying this, I mean, we, we, we're going far, far deeper on this idea of, uh, of this particular trade-off than, than, than I typically would in conversation or indeed do in the book. But, but I do think that acknowledging the universal reality of trade-offs is key mm -hmm. to, be, to proper prioritization. You know, the very idea that we just discussed of these priorities implies that, that people get the words right you know, oh, yes, that's a priority, that's a priority, oh, I've got 10 priorities, I've got, they, 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 in their words, imply that things are important, but they miss the, the edge of it, the cutting edge of it, which is what's the trade-off? What am I willing not to do in order to pursue the thing that really matters most? What am I willing to eliminate? And, 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 and we've talked about the word priority, but the word decide is also instructive. So the, the Latin root of the word decide is CID, C-I-D, or, or C-I-S, another derivative. And, the, you know, so words like scissors, uh, fracticide, homicide, all come from the same Latin root. And the word, sid or sis, what it means is to cut or to kill. And so what all of that is to, in service of is that, that the word decide itself means what you won't do 
what you don't do, what you aren't going to invest in. It's what you cut off. And so this is important. I mean, it's important for people who are, it's important for people who are designing an app. It's important for entrepreneurs. It's important for people who are, uh, who are trying to learn and figure out how to contribute in the world. There's two sides to innovation. Uh, the first side of innovation is this exploration, this ideation, this uh, brainstorming, these fast learning cycles, all of that. Perfectly true. I stand with everybody who, who emphasizes those ideas. Yes. But there's a whole second capability that, that is married together with the first, and it's the, the, it, it, to bring through forward breakthrough innovation, and that's the elimination uh, part. That's the, that was a good idea, but not a great one. It's a, that gives me, I give it, I give it 80% good, but it's not a 90% great idea. So I won't pursue it. Uh, it it's, it's, uh, it's becoming so selective in what you do and don't do, uh, that you can, uh, that, that you can invest, uh, you know, in just those few things, you know, less but better in those few things that really you feel uh, particularly excited about that, that, that you're wowed by. Uh, so, so I call that the 90% rule. Hmm. Uh, you know, if, if so, so it means that if something is only at 60, 70 or 80%, yes, you just pretend it's a zero and you don't do it. And so you're looking only, you're scanning. In fact, what happens is a bit of a paradox is that an essentialist explores far more options than a non-essentialist, but commits to far fewer and uh, because they're only going to pursue the things that are 90% or above. He uh, said more simply, uh, you know, this is uh, what David Silver's called uh, the no more yes, see the hell yeah or no principle. Uh, it's either a clear, strong, uh, you know, visceral yes, uh, yes, absolutely yes, or the answer is no. And I think that that helps to, that, that gets us to, a, it's quite a tangible test uh, of the different ideas that come along. How do you suggest people come up with the selection criteria? Is it a logical thing or is it really just a sort of gut reaction? How do you think well, about that? Well, I think it can be both, but I think, that, I think that literally coming up with criteria alone, the very act of doing it when facing a decision is is almost by definition more selective than the default position most people find themselves in. Hmm. Uh, you know, so, so for example, when, you, when you're clearing out your closet, finally it's overstuffed, there's too many things in there, and you finally you pick something out of the closet. If you don't go into it with clear criteria, then everything will go back on the shelf. Because the default criteria is you pick the item off the shelf and you go, well, I mean, I it's okay, and I might, I might wear it again sometime in the future. It's some possible. It might come back into fashion, and it's all right. I mean, I, 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 so-and-so gave it to me. I guess I got And it goes back on the shelf. See, because, because the, the default criteria in today's cultural environment is a very broad criteria. It's, a, 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 you know, it's, it's just as wide as anything. The answer is always yes if the criteria is that broad. But if you applied, for example, uh, this is a specific question. Marie Condi suggests this uh, in her book, and I love this question. She, asked, she says, of every item in your closet, in fact, of every item in your life, you should pick it up and feel it and look at it one by one and say, does it spark joy? That is so different than could I ever possibly wear it sometime in the future? Does it spark joy as an extreme criteria? It's a 90% 90, 90 rule question. Mm. 
And by asking that question of the items in your closet, you get down to just those few things. And I have done this. My wife and I read that book, and we have applied that to hundreds and hundreds of things in our lives. And we were already pretty, you know, we'd already gone through a pretty advanced simplification process. So, but there was so much more when we asked that more extreme question. And it was so delightful to see what, what remained because everything that remained was awesome. Everything that remained sparked joy. And that isn't, we're not talking about closets. We're talking about people's lives and the decisions they face and what they invest in. But if you ask the same kind of question, do I love this? Does this, am I passionate about this? Is this the meeting the right need in the world? Is this something that, that, it, that it just speaks to me and so on, that I'm talented at? Those kinds of selective questions help us to find not 50 options, but just the one or two that we really ought to go big on. What are some other questions that are useful? And I'd be interested in hearing it in a few different contexts. Maybe the questions are the same or different, but for when you're trying to make a business decision or, or decide what to spend your time on, what are some other questions that are useful in your, in your opinion? Well, I think that, uh, I think that um, people can ask, uh, you know, is this my highest point of contribution? I think people can ask the question, what's important now? Which has a nice acronym because that's uh, like win. So it's how to win. What's important now? Uh, I, think, I think people can ask the question when faced with two good options, like if I could only do one, what would I do? Uh, I think that often we ought to ask the question, which problem do I want? Do I want this thing or that thing? Often trade, every trade, every decision has trade-offs and we have to decide which trade-offs we want to make. Uh, so I, I think those are, those are a few more that we can, that we can add, to the, add to the list. And when people start realizing some of the essential things that they want and some of the things that they want to cut out, have you seen trends in the things that people cut out? I guess I, I have two questions. What are some of the trends in the things that people cut out and are like, wow, this really changed my life? And are there any trends in things that people are really surprised that they actually could, could it, cut it out and that it had a profound impact on them? Well, I always think that people ought to start, when they get into elimination experiments, they ought to start very small in running their, uh, their reverse pilots. Uh, so, for example, I wouldn't start with saying no to, you know, your boss's boss or, uh, or to, or to the, the most important client that you have. It's not the place to begin exercising uh, our essentialist muscles. So I think that, uh, that, that, but you ought to start with small wins. I mean, a, a fun thing to do is to take your smartphone and just to start eliminating everything that isn't really valuable to you. Just, just get rid of all those apps. Get rid of all that noise. Uh, make your phone boring, so to speak. Uh, you know, just, just, just eliminating that. I mean, I mean, a few, a minute or two, or, or half an hour on a flight, or, or just waiting between. Instead of checking email, instead of being on Twitter or Facebook, or something, just take those few minutes, reallocate that, and just eliminate the the noisiest apps for you, the things that distract you and take you away from being able to really focus on what matters most to you. I think that's, that's, that's a nice little start. Uh, I mean, a second thing I think is that people can, uh, can eliminate technology in, in their bedroom. Just is be in the rest of the house, okay, fine, but just not there. Have a place that's technology-free. 
Um, means that you just that that what that means it's not just that you can't surf the internet which is one form of distraction but people can't get into that space you know the, 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 wherever we have a phone with email on it anybody can come and shape our agenda can shape what we think about it's happened to me uh, honestly it's happened to me so many times but there are some key moments that i can think of now where i've received an email that was just really bothered me really affected me in the middle of something that was far more important because I had email on my phone. And so I often deactivate email on my phone altogether. Uh, and you can always activate it again when you, if, you, if you've got some information that's really important in a given situation. But I never regret when it's turned off. It's just, just one more protective boundary. I mean, other things people are going to eliminate. I mean, again, still staying on this sort of easier end mm-hmm. is, to, uh, is to eliminate just, just all the old files that you have, you're piling up. Uh, I've started to do this because I, I've noticed, and I've not, I'm not solved with it yet, but I've noticed, you know, I'll, I'll look for, okay, whatever it is. Uh, somebody says, oh, can you just send me this particular slide deck or something, uh, this, this information? And, and then I go, oh, I've got 10 versions of that. Uh, sometimes even more than that of something. And, and it's because we create new files far more easily, and our habits are around creating them than they are on eliminating them. And so I've taken a, a few uh, afternoons, uh, just over, over a period of time, to go through, eliminate stuff, and just get rid of it and clear it out. And every time I eliminate a single file, I feel very empowered because I think I'll never have to deal with that again. I'll never have to search that. They'll never be in my way again. I don't need it anymore. It's not important anymore. Um, and uh, and so, so these are these are all easy things. I, I think... You can expand from there. You can expand into the closet. We were using that just as a metaphor, but I think it's, I think it's not a bad place to go. Again, the closet's yours. It's your thing. So you can start there. It's less, you're less likely to offend other people by those choices. So you don't have to worry about all the social implications right up front. Uh, and, and then after we go through all the physical things, decluttering that, then I think we start looking at, looking at our schedule, what's on there, what shouldn't be on there. You can start putting windows of time on there that, that you just protect. I have one day a month uh, for the business that we protect for strategy work every, every, every month, one day. Um, honestly, I only started doing that recently, but I find that to be uh, you know, a very helpful thing because if you don't protect it, it doesn't happen. Uh, you just get doing good things, but you, you miss the chance to do the longer-term planning. So I think you then work on schedule and protecting the future. Uh, and then, of course, you can go beyond, beyond there, but I think that's enough to get going with. How would you suggest, a new, let's say, a new employee is coming into an organization and really works well under a blocked-off time? Like, they want three hours in the morning, but the company culture is, you know, everybody's on Slack, everyone's always instant messaging all the time, and it's kind of distracting. What sort of thing could that person say to their boss or to kind of change the culture? What's sort of the convincing argument for blocked off time and, and why organizations should implement it? Well, I mean, I can only speak to what I really know. And what I do know is that the, that the book Essentialism has a primary, advan- primary value proposition, which is it introduces the language, uh, new language, coined the phrase essentialism and essentialist and non-essentialist and all of this. And this language is its primary contribution. Because once people have language, they can talk about things. 
And once they can talk about things, they can make decisions. But until you have language, you can't talk about it, and therefore you can't make new decisions. And so I don't think that somebody on their own, uh, you know, junior mm-hmm. in the organization, seeing a better way, announcing that, listen, I really work a lot better if I have three hours in the morning without distraction, is the right way to position that. But I think, hey, listen, I read a really interesting book that I think could help us to, be, to, to break through to the next level in this organization or on this team. Uh, that I think could really help us to to, to do what matters and to, to move the needle, you know, this month, this week, this year. Uh, and, and then you have a couple of people read it. Well, first there's one and now there's two. And I've seen this happen. I mean, I've seen this literally happen in organizations. And I don't mean they've suddenly transformed their whole culture, but I'll give you a real-life example at, at Airbnb. So one of the executives there read Essentialism, uh, really resonated with them. And they, they then went and insisted that everybody else on the executive team, including the CEO, Brian, read the book. And, uh, and, and they, they put, they, to get Brian to read it, the CEO, they, gave, they got two copies of the book. They put one in his office and they, they mailed the other one to another location they knew that he was going to. So it would be on his coffee table there so that either way he would be confronted with the book. And he read it. Uh, and, and when I talked to him about this, he said, you know, to be honest, the number one concern I have for Airbnb. The number one concern is what you write about in this book, is that, that, there's, that we will pursue too many good things instead of pursuing those few things that really matter. That is my concern. And he wrote an email to his whole company about that. Uh, and he ended up having me come and speak. I speak at a lot of conferences as the keynote speaker. And, and he had me speak to his whole company, everybody, the whole company. And we, we, we addressed this. And, and they, they, they began experimenting by saying, okay, we're going to have, I think it was Wednesday afternoon, maybe Thursday. Uh, we're not going to have no meeting day. And I don't know how that's turning out for them. And it does, that's not really the point. The, the point is, are you, are you going to explore with these ideas? Are you going to start being able to have the conversation so that you can help people to, to reasonably uh, discuss, well, what if I you know, went into monk mode for two or three hours on this project that we all know is important? Well, not on my team. I don't mind at all. We have an exercise. I, I have a, I just hired a new employee who who uh, sends to me on Monday morning, and he sends it to me. He's the one that identifies this and, and pursues this. He says, here are the top things I'm going to work on this, this week in priority order. And then on Friday, he gives a report on you know, what the wins were for the week so that we can celebrate them. That little, that little ta- you know, tactic, uh, I, think is, uh, I think, is a really good habit to get into uh, because then... I, I, in between, I'm not micromanaging him. I, I'm, not, I'm not calling him, well, what are you working on? How long have you worked on it? And so on. No, not at all. I want you to work on those things. And I'm just here in service of you helping you to achieve those objectives. So this, I think, this, I think can really work. For people who want to really expedite their ability to focus on these essential things, what are some of the the practices they can do, or I guess I'd split it into a couple things. What are some technologies or apps that they can use to help them stay focused or, or stay focused on the right things? Uh, yeah, let's, I guess let's start there. So, so I have, um, I have uh, what, what, one little suggestion on this is, uh, is, is in Chrome, for anyone who uses Chrome, uh, there's, a, there's a new uh, little app that you can download called Momentum. I think that's the name of it. And what's fun about this is that every time you open uh, a new page in that web browser, it brings up a page with the question, what is the one thing you, uh, 
focused on today. And you type it in there, uh, and then every time you open a page, it comes back and you can see that one thing. It's a very simple, non-distracting page uh, that, that you go to. I, I like that. I think that's a, that's a great habit to get into, um, to, to be able to, um, you know, to do what we're talking about. So that, that, that's an, an example of a tool. What do you think about social media? Do you use it or do you? Look, I think it's social media, I think my position on this is that social media makes uh, a good servant, uh, but a poor master. So, uh, so I think that uh, it's not, I, I certainly don't have the view that you either, uh, you either have to get rid of it altogether, never spend one second in social media. Uh, you know, and I, I'm not of that opinion. Uh, but, but I think that you have to become really thoughtful about it again so that it, 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 it becomes in service of the essential mission that you're trying to pursue, that it, that it helps to further that. And also that you start to know when it's not, in, it's not furthering uh, that mission, uh, that it's actually distracting from it. So, uh, so that's, that's generally my view. I think that you have to get clear on your, your purpose, your essential intent for your life, and also for, you know, down as we've been discussing to your quarter and even to your weekly routine. Uh, but, then, but then you can say, well, Oh, this could be a great accelerator to something that I'm trying to achieve. I certainly feel that about social media. Lots of key moments. Um, you know, I write for LinkedIn. I write blogs for Harvard Business Review. You know, these are on these are on platforms, and uh, at times are you know these are a million people a month uh, are able to to read the ideas of essentialism. So I think it can be very powerful, a very a very good tool. Uh, but I, I also see. Uh, you know, also can be guilty of being pulled into it in a way that it becomes a distraction. So, so yeah, that's my view. The summary is uh, social media can be a, uh, a great servant but a poor master. What unanswered questions do you have about essentialism and where do you mm. think there are the biggest potentials for there to be impact in terms of disseminating ideas or mm. changing the world with this idea? Mm. Well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think that I, I think I hold uh, the one overarching unanswered question, which is, which is how can you, how can you actually help, uh, you know, an enormous number of people to 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 buy into this uh, this this way of thinking and actually to start constructing and designing their lives around it. So to me, the questions of, of how to implement it, how to, how to help, uh, you know, how, what, what, what if, uh, what would happen? How can you create it so that schools, for example, have each of the students really designing life around their highest point of contribution uh, that in, in ways that could affect the whole community instead of just doing busy work? Uh, what, what, if, uh, what, what if companies really invested in their people, uh, instead of sending them to training that sort of just serves the corporation and a little bit of a nod to people development. Instead, you said, no, we're really here going to help you design, uh, you know, a life that really matters, even if that means that at some point in the future, it leads you to, to, to work elsewhere. That is how to get companies to believe that that is a better, that that is a better strategy. Uh, you know, so, so there's a, to me, there's a question of just how do you help uh, what's the best way 
to help people to actually become essentialists uh, in in a sort of in, in a broader uh, in a broader way, you know, in a broader impact way. When when there's so many people who I think are not uh, feeling like they're essentialists right now. And for people who want to pick up a daily, weekly, monthly practice, what are the three things that they should do? The three most important habits they can form in order to live like a focused essentialist? Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to give this well in a prioritized list, but, uh, and one of them will sound a little self-serving, but I think actually one thing they could do is just sign up for the newsletter on essentialism because it, then every week you're having something enter your life that is, you know, we've already been oversold the value of more, so it's time to be sold on the value of less, and that's what they get. One, one article, carefully written, thoughtfully written, uh, for, the, for the benefit of an individual. So I think that's one thing. It's a small thing, and it, it's uh, not very hard, and it introduces this thinking in. Uh, I, think the, I think now we're getting back to, uh, to where we were before. I think this, you know, the next thing is to hold a personal quarterly offsite, uh, and, uh, and, and they can read some of the things that and I've written quite a bit about how to do that and, and some of the things that we've done in the past and what we're learning as we run these programs. Uh, and, and I think the third thing is, I think of something we haven't covered so far. I would say that every day, um, is, this is a practice that I've done for, for many years, uh, but, uh, and I haven't missed a day certainly in the last four or four and a half years, I would think now, where I just write down key moments in the day where I'm thankful for, I'm thankful for this essential thing. And what I'm doing really is I'm celebrating the times that I have traded off something non-essential for something that was more essential. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just, you know, it, I, I think people can get very discouraged about their performance in this area, that they can start to feel like, oh, you know, I, I just always get this wrong. I mean, of course, none of us get this right. Of course, we make mistakes. Of course, we don't do, um, you know, everything that, uh, that, that we believe is important. But that, that's, that's so irrelevant. What we need to be doing is looking at the times we get it right and celebrating the progress that's being made uh, and realizing we do have some choice and we are making some of those good choices. So I think that one, I, I, would, I love doing that. That has been a, been a, some, a place of, of generating excitement for me, a sense of progress for me. And I think that that, uh, that might be the third thing. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I think... More so than any other interview, I'm, I'm excited to come out of this doing less <laughs> than, uh, than doing more, more suggestions. So it's, it's been a real pleasure, and I, I really appreciate the time and talk and, and all the, the thoughts you put into this idea and way of life. Well, it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I, I love what Make School is seeking to do, and, uh, and I'm thrilled to be a small part of, uh, of, of that larger pursuit today. Thank you. This podcast is and always will be ad-free, but we rely on listeners like you to show us the love and subscribe. It helps others find the show, so please write us a review on the App Store by going to make.sc slash podcast review. You can also go to make.sc slash podcast to see the show notes, and we invite you to leave comments, join in on the discussion, and tell us what you think of the episode.